with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about the UN estimates that India surpassing China as the most populous country by mid 2023. So, what does it mean for the economy? And the new capital of barbecue Zibo has become a hot destination for travelers in China. And now, let's begin with our top story. The United Nations estimates that China will soon cease to be the world's most populous country. It says India will surpass China as the most populous nation by mid 2023, and there are concerns that China may lose its demographic dividend. So, what is the demographic dividend besides the whole population of a country? What does it mean for the economy? And will India replace China as the world factory? For more on this, join us on the line. Now, Ah、uh, Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, and also Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, Ina, first of all, what do you think of the population issue? Is the more always mean the better? No, not at all. The the issue is where is your economy and is it prepared to take advantage of a, a labor dividend? And at this juncture,、uh, India is not. It's going to have to find another way of using its population.、It、has issues with unemployment.、Um, you know, primary education accounts for seventy over seventy percent of the population. So we're we're talking something around third, fourth, fifth grade. Um, those are not、uh, people who are going to fit easily into this kind of information digital、uh, world that we're living in.、Um, yes, they can do uh, very um, basic uh, labor-intensive industries, but India isn't necessarily the cheapest.、Uh, Bangladesh, other areas are out there. So, this idea of equating population growth with economic Uh, growth is is a false narrative. It、mm. doesn't necessarily equate. There are opportunities, but there are also challenges.、Mm. So yeah, you are a professor of economics. So does the population growth automatically lead to economic development? Do you think? So I agree with Ina. I think、um, the answer is it's definitely not necessarily that the higher population growth will lead to higher economic growth.、Uh, when you look at the traditional, you know, economics growth theory, right? It's the labor input, it's the capital input, but also the total factor productivity that leads to、uh, that lead to economic growth. So labor is just part of the equation, and it's also not just about. You know how much population you have, but also you know how much you are able to employ these labor and how they are productive or not.、Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, larger population typically it's mean that there will be more more needs for resources and you know the social provisioning.、Um, and also in the early stage of development, labor input is usually very important, right? As countries are able to. You know, engage in labor-intensive manufacturing, production, exports, and so on and so forth. That was also, you know, in China's past history.、Um, but as the economy grows and matures,、um, usually the sources of development will come from different areas, like technological innovations and productivity-driven growth.、Um, so I think, you know, like Anna was talking about,、um, I think it's very important for the country to be able to utilize its population and to boost its productivity and provide certain necessary, you know,、um, social 
uh, goods, right, to help this population to be more productive and also provide the sufficient, you know, jobs and income so then the population can help to promote, for example, demand uh, of the economy. Mm. So, yeah, so what are the main factors of demographic dividend besides the whole number of population of a country? Yeah, so when economists talk about population dividend, um, it usually means the, you know, large pool of young labor force. Um, so that is typically helpful because that adds, you know, labor uh, input to the production. Um, and other than that, I think it's also very important to look at the demand side um, because, you know, young people typically, potentially, they have more discretionary spending, like they buy houses and, you know, they start families, they need home appliances, they travel a lot more, they, you know, engage in various entertainments. And um, the elderly, um, they have less sort of discretionary spending like the young people, right? Especially when you think about how we can, you know, um, uh, develop the housing sector. So the young people are very important for that. And finally, I think it also related to, you know, productivity growth, because I think um, it goes without saying, right, it's harder to teach old dogs new tricks. So when you have young and dynamic population, it's easier to promote the kinds of technological innovations. Um, but that said, again, declining population doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we're not going to have uh, labor force because, again, productivity matters. And it also doesn't mean that we can't have demand side boost because it really depends on, you know, how you restructure your demand. Um, and finally, uh, we could definitely see more productivity growth um, if we provide the right incentives and the environment and the policies and so on. Mm. And so, Aina, so talking about China's uh, population reality, China is now shifting towards a focus on quality over quantity, and China is focusing on more talents with higher education. So how does this talent dividend help with the greater innovation and the economic growth? Well, it's it's very important, especially in the kind of world that uh, Yan was describing. Uh, when you're looking for productivity boosts through uh, innovation, also automation, uh, the people involved have to have educations. Uh, have to have education in China. Uh, it's almost 11 years average uh, um, education levels for the Chinese uh, working population. We're talking about 900 uh, million people. So. Uh, they're more ready, but there's still work to be done. Uh, and China's, um, Beijing has put a tremendous amount of emphasis on technical training. Uh, they don't necessarily need lots more college graduates, um, you know, in different areas. They, they need people who can work with the technology, uh, read blueprints, um, understand how to design things. Um, those are the really important uh, parts in terms of uh, China's going ahead. And there is a perfect example. Uh, you know, we were talking about the Canton Fair. Uh, there you have a situation where, you know, the people who are making Christmas tree ornaments and toys and simple things, sneakers, etc., were having a very, very difficult time at the fair attracting bids because there were lower, um, the, the competition from uh, areas like Bangladesh, uh, Malaysia, etc., was higher because their uh, labor rates are lower. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, everything that was high tech that uh, China was producing, whether it's EVs, uh, electrical um, uh, machinery, et cetera, was in very, very high demand and they were experiencing a boom. So, you know, China is definitely uh, doing exactly what it intended to do in terms of climbing the economic value chain, going more towards this tertiary society where it's more services and also uh, innovative high tech processes that are doing it them also. 
uh, very important is when you're uh, China's uh, growth is not just simply about the talent. They're also paying a lot of attention to their infrastructure, mm. uh, to making sure that, uh, you know, you can get your goods from A to Z. Uh, they also have this system of uh, clustered development so that it's very easy if you're trying to make a laptop or uh, you're doing plumbing fixtures or automotive um, assembly things. Uh, if you locate in these areas, there's not only large sources of customers, but also resources uh, that really cuts down the amount of time that it takes to do something. For instance, in Shenzhen right now, if you want to develop a new phone, it takes six weeks. You compare that to Apple, which, you know, makes a big to do about uh, you know, churning out a new, <laughs> a new model once a year and, um, you know, big innovations once every two or three years. So you can see where the, um, you know, the advantage goes in terms of consumer goods. Mm. And also, Yan, so actually, according to the UN estimates, India is set to surpass China by mid this year as the world's most populous nation. So will India replace China to be the world factory? Well, I think um, the answer again, it's not necessarily right. Um, we know that, you know, for example, China's economy right now is still four times larger than India, and it has also a lot more price competitiveness. Um, you know, general goods prices is only one third, one sixth about um, India's, you know, the in terms of the inflation rate. Um, China's manufacturing productivity is also 60% higher um, than India. And so I think all these means that, you know, China still has a great advantage in manufacturers and in manufacturing industries. Um, not to mention, I think, you know, China still has a lot of potential, as I think Anna just eloquently pointed out that, you know, China has large room to improve education, to improve the talents and skills and productivity um, and, and innovations. And so I think it's China's conscious choice, right, to um, in some ways graduate from those labor intensive and low value added industries, but then um, increasingly to move up to that more value added, more skill based manufacturing and services, the so-called, you know, smart and intelligent manufacturing. Um, and for India, I think it's good if it becomes more competitive. Um, it's good for their people and it's good for constructive competition. Uh, but I think India definitely has their own, you know, challenges, even though they may be able to gain more, you know, the so-called population dividend, but they really need to work hard to improve their infrastructure, um, their business environment, you know, and also to improve their, you know, uh, educational standards. Um, so I think by some estimates, you know, even though India's population is going to overtake China's, but even by the end of the century, um, the India's economy uh, is going to still be about five times smaller than China's. Um, so again, I think, you know, definitely India is a growing country, is becoming more uh, economically powerful, um, but there's still distance and China is not stagnating. China is still moving ahead. Um, so I think but the healthy competition between the country, the two countries and economic corporations uh, will be super beneficial for both countries and the entire region and the global economy. Aina, mm, so a lot of uh, people ask this question, will India replace China to be the world factory? Because as China's economy develops, it's natural that uh, workers in China will earn higher wages. So what do you think about China's future advantage compared to countries with lower costs of labor? Well, as I said, it's about being more efficient. Um, automation is replacing a lot of the labor intensive, um, you know, high tech uh, uh, products that are necessary. Um, and as a result, you know, other areas as we, you know, Yan and I have been talking about, um, they have been going to other countries. 
there was this idea that China would shed, um, you know, high labor and labor intensive industries where it's, you know, as its wages uh, rose, would not be able to compete. Um, that's offset a little bit by automation, uh, but not completely. Um, you know, this idea that uh, somehow you have to compare China and India is, is wrong. Uh, India has its own path. And it's not necessarily going to follow China, just as China didn't follow the U.S. and the America didn't necessarily follow Europe. Uh, each one has uh, something it brings to the table, and India is going to have to figure out how it to use its its huge uh, labor dividend in some way that is constructive. Part of that's going to be education. A lot of it has to do with the uh, infrastructure there. It's very much behind the times. There are other things at play. You know, let's let's take a look at women's labor percentages. All right, in China it's over over 60%. In India, it's actually gone backwards over the last uh, 20 years. It's now below 20%. Just doing simple math, if you say 1.4 billion people, half of them approximately are women, and you will start applying those numbers, uh, it can be deceiving to just say, oh, a, a bigger population equals a more activated and available workforce. Uh, with China having three times as many uh, women in the workforce, it is, obviously has an economic advantage uh, in that. So um, productivity does count. And um, comparing China and India is, is pointless. Uh, it's something that I think outside entities that are trying to use India uh, as a, you know, kind of an economic stop to China's expansion are promoting. But it has nothing to do with the reality that, as Yan said, you know, the if you look at uh, 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 the infrastructure, the education levels, the, uh, you know, <laughs> the output of each country, it's completely different. India mm -hmm. needs to find its own way. Not not it can borrow from everybody, but it literally has to figure out what it wants and what it can do. Mm. So, Yan, talking about the population growth, Natalia Kamen, the UN Population Fund head, told press that human reproduction is neither the problem nor the solution to challenges such as climate change, such as pandemic, conflicts, and economic uncertainty. So what's your take? Right, I think she's absolutely right. So the UN Population Fund also published a report uh, in which they really point out, for example, when it comes to climate change, uh, countries that are having the highest population growth, um, they are the ones that contribute the least to climate change, but suffer the most from it, right? These are most of the poor um, African countries. Um, so they're not really the problem of climate change um, and they alone cannot also uh, you know, address climate change uh, all by themselves, right? Giving the resources and technological constraints and, and so on and so forth. And the report also point out, you know, what really is needed is very resilient system that could respond to the needs of a population, no matter what the size it is. Mm. So in other words, I think, you know, in it depends on the different situations, right? For um, countries that are experiencing high growth of the population, what they really need is they need the empowerment of their workforce um, through education and family planning, and that will help to lead to healthy and sustainable growth and deal with all these um, challenges that you just mentioned. Um, but for you know aging and low fertility countries, um, there are in some ways concerned about labor shortages. Um, that is a real challenge because now we have four workers supporting one uh, young uh, elderly, but we'll get to the point where we only have one young worker supporting one old, um, you know, one elderly. So. It is a real challenge, but again, the way we'll be able to cope with this is, of course, through, 
you know, what we have been talking about, right? Productivity growth, automation, AI, um, all these technologies will be super helpful. But we also need to enhance, for example, gender, you know, parity in the workforce. Um, mm-hmm. And so those would be super helpful for, you know, improvements of productivity, uh, but also, you know, just the general well-being um, of the country's population. And we definitely need to also improve um, many of the social infrastructures, right? Like providing um, education, right? China, for example, um, giving the technological changes, giving the skill changes, um, around 220 million workers, which is 30% of the population between, you know, 2018, 2030, they would have to move uh, sectors. So some of the, you know, population that are now still working in the agriculture sector, which is about a quarter of the workforce, will now need to find, you know, um, employment in elsewhere. So there's tremendous needs for um, upgrading our educational system and provide more, you know, for example, pension, right? We need to definitely increase that pension funds um, to be able to provide for the elderly uh, and also healthcare, you name it. So um, again, I think different countries have different needs um, depending on their population structure and their size. Um, but, you know, the government and the, the economies would definitely take, you know, we need to take proactive measures, right, to deal with their own, um, challenges, but also utilize your own respective you know, advantages. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University, and also Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at the new capital of barbecue, Zibo, has become a hot destination for travelers in China. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. China's domestic consumption expected to revive further during the May Day holiday. Industry insiders expect an explosive market response in the tourism sector. And searches for hotels increased more than nine times compared with the year 2019. Booking for Zibo in Shandong province surged by 440% compared with the same period in 2019. And Zibo is a recent trending city on Chinese social media for its delicious barbecue. So, Yan, first of all, Zibo has become a hot destination due to its delicious barbecue. So tell us how it got so famous in such a short period of time. Yeah, this is such an interesting phenomenon. Um, I think, you know, the reason that it becomes so famous in the short term is because it really takes advantage of the social media and also media influencers um, and also, you know, take advantage of the, some cultural events where, you know, they have you know, these cultural fest- festivals. Um, then celebrities came and they praised for, you know, the barbecue. 
and that went viral on the social media and more and more young people joined um, and that make it such a hot destination. And I think that also in a way um, also about timing, right? Um, I think this is really the success, right? It's actually a long-term um, making process. I think, you know, back in 2016, the Zibo government already started to, you know, promote the industry, right? When other cities a lot of times are restricting the, uh, you know, outdoor barbecue because of pollution, because of, you know, other sanitary, uh, you know, problems. But the Zibo government has really um, tried to regulate industries, you know, for, um, for example, requiring the non-smoking barbecue ovens um, and also centralize the management and you know, z- using technology like digital devices. Um, so like in China, we, we said, you know, Zibo success was really a result of the um, it's hard to find exact English translation, but, you know, it's about good policies, good politics um, and harmonious you know, society where people work together towards that common good. Mm-hmm. So Anna, so the Zibo barbecue has become a economic uh, phenomenon. So it is a good example. So how do you think can small and medium-sized cities promote their tourism and local economies? Well, uh, first, you have to go back a little ways. Um, none of this would have been possible had not uh, the uh, central government put in these fast trains. This idea that you can just run down to Zibo and uh, enjoy some barbecue and then head back after a day on a you know on a fast train um, is you know very very important. Uh, if you were hopping on a bus and you know then a taxi and then having to go through potholed streets or something like that, you definitely would not have the same reaction. But it's ease of getting there. Also, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough how impressed I am mm. uh, with local government marketing. Instead of just saying no, it's very easy for governments to say no. Oh, well, there's environmental pollution. We're just going to shut down all of the barbecue places. And we've seen that in different areas. Instead, they were innovative. They said, look, we have to have uh, something that attracts people. People are now interested in experience travel. They want to go and they want to do something. And it can be taste, it can be sights, whatever it is, but they want to experience it. No longer is it just enough to take pictures. They want to have something that they can remember uh, in detail and mm. they can talk about with their friends. So that's uh, incredibly important. And right now, China's going through a, a kind of demographic shift uh, in terms of the um, uh, tourism. Uh, it's estimated that 70 to 80 percent of all tourism will be within China. And that represents a big, big change because mm. before the status thing was I'm going abroad, I'm going, you know, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff, take, <laughs> bring it back to China as gifts and I'm going to take lots of pictures. Um, I may not really experience much because I'll be on a bus or a tour, a guided tour, but I will have done it and it was a status thing. Now people are looking for more meaningful experiences as I was talking about. So things are changing. Uh, local governments are becoming more proactive. Uh, the underlying infrastructure uh, allows it to happen. So I think it's a good thing and a very good model for other governments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so talking about the upcoming May Day holiday, do you think the domestic consumption or travel will further revive? There is a term revenge travel, right? So is the tourism industry prepared for it? And how much impact do you expect this holiday to have on the consumer spending and the economy as a whole? Right. I absolutely think that, you know, the hell of travel and consumer spending 
um, will rise. And as you mentioned, the revenge spending, um, it's, it's, I think it's really providing a lot of impetus, right, for that rising travels and also, you know, tourism spending. And that's definitely helpful for the economy to rebound. Um, as we just saw the first quarter um, GDP growth rates and also consumer spending, right, we have seen that Retail sales has gone up, you know, by 10% in March, and we have seen consumption has, you know, contributed to two thirds of the first quarter GDP growth. Um, so that just goes on to say that, you know, as we all expected and hoped that consumer spending will revive and grow robust in a robust way to boost the economy. And we are seeing that materializing. So I definitely expect that the May travel, uh, May holiday travel uh, will be rising and to be compatible with you know, the pre-COVID number um, because of this revenge spending, because people have saved a lot of money. So they are able to, you know, support their spending. And I also think that's going to be very helpful um, for the second quarter of, you know, um, uh, economic recovery. Mm. And Ina, so analysts say that consumption will be the most important driver for China's economy this year. Of course, we see dining out closing, a lot of, uh, you know, this sort of stuff has already come back quite fast. But have the big ticket items, things like cars and new homes consumption coming back? Well, uh, there's... Uh Currently, an uptick in terms of housing. I mean, um, I mean, friends of mine report that during the pandemic, they got very few calls about their house. Either you know, do you want to buy? Do you want to sell? Now they're getting three or four calls a day, uh, saying, "Hey, we want to buy your house, or do you want to buy, you know sell a house?" Um, and that indicates that the property market is uptick, and I think that uh, can be seen in the statistics. Uh, large uh, ticket items, cars, etc. Um, EVs doing very, very well. Uh, some of the other things, people, I believe, are waiting to see how it goes. But you know, remember the uh, the economic engine of China is these small, medium-sized business entities, mm. and they were hard hit during the pandemic. Uh, you can say that some people save money, but if you're in business, maybe you went out of business and uh, you lost uh, quite a bit of money. But when you have these kind of tourism things where it's uh, the barriers to entry, to setting up a stall, getting a couple of stoves and, and um, you know, putting out some Zubo barbecue and attracting people, I, I guarantee you there's going to be a lot of people who are starting Zibo style uh, barbecues in other cities around China. And as I said, this creates small, medium-sized businesses, and this can be very, very important to Chinese economy. 90% of new jobs, 80% of existing jobs, it cannot be ignored. And the Chinese government is paying a lot of attention to it. Um, and everything from tax breaks to reducing uh, red tape to creating companies, et cetera, like this. Uh, so I, I see this as very, very hopeful because this is an area where you, you do have the possibility of starting a business and being successful as opposed to, you know, trying to get into high tech or something like that. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.